Welcome back. Now, can I hear myself? I can hear myself. We forgot to do a sound check today, people. Sorry. Um, <laughs> welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with talking with directors, writers, composers, cinematographers, actors, actors turned directors, um, costume designers, production designers, sound mixers, sound designers, and you name it, we'll talk to them when it comes to film, television, and even moving into the literary world and music. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad, and particularly on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, you're going to find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you happen to be listening, you can always go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, and you can watch the Nifty Neat live stream that our fearless leader, Nick, likes toys and technology, and he likes live streams, so we're doing a live stream on there. Nothing thrilling unless you want to, you know, take a gander at all of the very cool, cool stuff uh, from Marvel and Disney uh, showcasing Marvel films, Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, and let's not forget the big news, people, Avengers Endgame coming back to, to theaters this weekend, I believe, with added footage and, thankfully, something a post-credits something, which was horrifying that we didn't have one when the film came out. Uh, and, of course, Aladdin. Aladdin is still kicking butt at the box office. Um, and, but the big box office news this weekend was, of course... One of my favorites, Toy Story 4. And Forky! Uh, I, I love Forky. There's no doubt about it. I love Forky. If you watched the show last week, uh, you know that. If you caught me this past Friday on Popcorn Talk on the uh, LA Online Film Critics Society Weekly Critics Pick Show on Friday at 11 o'clock, uh, Forky made an appearance there as well. Uh, and the... LAOFCS love for Forky is uh, is undying, let me tell you. Uh, and Forky did take over the box office this weekend, uh, 118 million U.S. Um, closest thing at the box office that was another new release, Child's Play. It pulled in 14 million, and I'm shocked it even did that. Uh, so we'll see you. And uh, on the horizon, people, mark your calendars. July 19th, The Lion King is in theaters. I'm very excited. I just got uh, all my screening and junket information on that. Uh, so that's rapidly approaching. Uh, so we will have more from Disney throughout the summer. But today, I'm so excited. Today is a real treat on Behind the Lens. Um, as you know, we've, I've been talking about Dances with Films uh, here on, on Behind the Lens for a number of weeks now, also with George Pinocchio, and also on LA Online Film Critics Society Weekly Critics Picks on Popcorn Talk. And I've been showcasing, speaking with a lot of directors here on the show uh, and doing other interviews and reviews. Very, very excited that we have. The festival ended last night. The Grand Jury Prize winner was announced, and it was the film Gutterbug. And he's here first this morning. Writer-director Andrew Gibson is joining us at the quarter-hour mark so to talk all about Gutterbug. First feature film for him. First film! So uh, this is going to be really exciting to talk to him as he's, pro as he's still on a high from last night's win. And midpoint mid in the show, writer-director Josh Huber is joining us. Josh, I adore Josh. I adore his film, Making Babies. It's a comedy. Um... Josh and I spoke back in April uh, when I was dying with the flu and could barely even speak. It was right around the time I had, I couldn't even come in here for a show uh, because I could not speak. Uh, so uh, Josh will be here today. I'm in 90% in voice today and we're going to catch up. Plus for filmmakers out there that are listening, you, you're going to want to tune in and listen to what Josh has to say. Because Josh took a very unique 
tact with distribution of making babies. They did self-distribution. An incredible learning curve, but a very beneficial one. And I'm going to get him to elaborate on that on the show today. Um, That was for theatrical release. But then he went traditional and went with Samuel Goldwyn uh, for the distribution for DVD Blu-ray. And Making Babies comes out on DVD and Blu-ray, I believe, tomorrow. So we're going to talk to Josh to and. But this is an interesting aspect for all independent filmmakers who want to know how you get your film out there. How do you get a distributor? Self-distribution is an option for you. It's not easy. But as Josh is going to, as I'm sure he's going to reiterate and tell you today, um, it is a very viable option. And you'll learn a lot in the process that even if you've got so many hurdles to mount, to do a self-distribution yourself, what you learn will come back to you tenfold when you then negotiate for distribution through a distributor uh, on other films in the future. So very excited to have Andrew and Josh with us today. But right now, because it has expanded into more theaters this past weekend, Pavarotti, Ron Howard's love letter to Luciano Pavarotti, uh, as I've said before, it's an incredible, incredible documentary. And one of the things that makes it so incredible is the sound design, the sound mix. And credit and, and Ron Howard, as you've heard on the show uh, from Ron in our exclusive interview, he, Ron credits all of that to Chris Jenkins, the sound mixer. Uh, Chris is a musician. Chris has several Oscars under his belt. He, he has done his other films include Love and Mercy. Heaven is for real. Going back to Dante's Peak, Swing Shift, and Say Anything. Plus, he did the sound mix on Ron's documentary, Beatles Eight Days a Week. Uh, And he is the sound mixer here on Pavarotti. And what he did, very conscious choice here, Dolby Atmos. Sound is in Dolby, is mixed for Dolby Atmos three-dimensional sound system that will accommodate up to 64 speaker fields. And the sound is defined as individual objects. And you can actually manipulate up to 128 different objects, which, and each sound is an object. And you're going to get to hear a a, probably a huge chunk of my exclusive interview with, uh, with Chris talking about the, the reasons for choosing Dolby and the benefits of it in creating contrast amongst the sounds, which as a result creates an intimacy that really translates to you as a moviegoer. So without any further ado, let's take a listen to uh, my conversation with Chris Jenkins, sound mixer, talking about Pavarotti and Dolby Atmos. Uh, well, before you had to run off and, and take care of, of this situation, I ask you about choosing Dolby Atmos for this and the challenges that it presents and considerations it presents for you in mixing when you're using archival audio. Um, you've got, you have great recordings, but then so much of this, such as the Amazon River Trip, Um, you're not dealing with pristine stuff and you want to retain that. But then when you're dealing with Atmos, you know, you've got 64 speaker fields and you can manipulate all these auditory objects, but how do you do it to retain the, the authenticity while still enhancing it? So, um, but it's a really, it's a a very astute question and it's sort of the, the heart and soul of the whole project is. So a lot of times Atmos allows us or immersive formats, whichever, they, they just allow you to be in a space. So the, the, the pop, opening of Pavarotti is truly a brilliant opportunity to me because it's, it's on a handheld mono, like what a Super 8 camera or, you know, a Handycam. Mm-hmm. Hear the microphone being bumped around on it. So the the, the success of the soundtrack is based upon contrast. So we have mono, simple source, and we have multi-track. You know, we have 
96 channels of 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 live, you know, oven gardens or three tenors. So you have the whole scale. You have everything from the simplest mono, really grainy, small scale source, all the way up to the largest, you know, opera with multi-track recording. And all of them can inhabit that space uniquely and in a way that if the movie sounds great, it's because there's a lot of contrast in it. And it's mm -hmm. not just turning on the Atmos 64 speakers at the beginning of the movie or 5.1 or 7.1 and using all the speakers all the time. It's how you best tell the story by, by masterfully, you know, handling that technology. So the, the Amazon, the vocal performance in there, I just want to be in that hall. I want to know what it sounded like when Caruso sang there and then Pavarotti sang there. What did it sound like if you were the viewer? Whereas in other situations, we do use all, you know, 64 objects. We create a, a you know, much more intense, modern sounding sound field. Mm -hmm. And it lends itself to that form of storytelling. So to me, it's really just a matter of you as a viewer saying, where do I want to be when I'm listening to this piece of music? And it's partially steered by picture. You know, I think that Ron and Paul Crowder had when you see that Amazon footage, it looks like it's shot. You know, it's it's matted like a little simple digital camera, almost like an iPhone. When you mm -hmm. look at it, then all of a sudden the picture opens up. So as we scale up and down with picture or storytelling, the soundtrack should do exactly the same. So a lot of times we don't have just because we're doing it in Atmos same way in 5.1. Sometimes just mono is beautiful and serves the picture in that scene perfectly. And then as soon as you open up, in fact, the opening of the movie is the jungle sounds and it sounds cool and kind of modern. All of a sudden you telescope down, you zoom in to this little grainy handheld uh, video camera footage, but it's probably the most spectacular footage of among us in the whole movie. This is Pavarotti going to where Caruso sang. Mm -hmm. So the way to make that have the most impactful for me is just okay let's just try to create what it must have felt like to be Andrea Griminelli and whoever else was in that room and hearing Pavarotti sing where Caruso sang so that can be a simple interpretation of it and it just because it filled the Atmos or, or a, an audio format doesn't mean that it has to be full on so to me I always, I always think that the Atmos in movies and in songs works best when there's space and time, meaning there's some rests in the music or rests in the movie where people get to reset, you know, what they're listening to by just, so it's sort of like serving a sorbet, right? You have to cleanse the palate pretty mm -hmm. regularly when you have this much information to get somebody. So you just need to have tools to help people reset how they're listening and how to focus their attention and then how to really, when it's full on make it the most incredible immersive experience that you possibly can you know as an artist as a, as a person dealing with the sound on it you just want to find the best way to to the emotional get the emotional impact so so yeah the the archival stuff just like with the beatles you know with documentaries in general i find at the end of the day they don't sound like an audiophile experience, but they sound beautiful because of the intelligent use of all the different content. Mm -hmm. And you, so, you mentioned a key word of contrast and and the, the idea of just like in music with the rest uh, and allowing people to, you know, regroup as you're listening, cleansing that auditory palette. And right after the Amazon sequences and we go to Italy and it is the most delicate sound mix, Chris. You can hear the little birds chirping. So you bring that in from the Amazon footage, but here we are with this beautiful, bright, uh, you know, like a, a, a 6K palette yeah. of Italy, but with this delicacy of sound. And you have managed this mix that you have put together here. It is a perfect contrast as... Ron builds up with the visuals um, getting to the height of Pavarotti and his performances 
And it sounds like the, the sound design and the mix you have goes along on that journey as well, building to the three tenors moments. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's the, you know, really the, the, the movie and the soundtrack are just about, they're really simple. It's just about joy, love, emotional. You know, he, he was the whole, the, every time we've seen the movie, people go, you know, extremely emotional at the end of it is because it's just about simple joy and feelings and the fact, you know, he got a hall pass, he considered this, you know, when he didn't die from tetanus at a young age, he considered his whole life was a gift and he really behaved that way. So, I mean, the good, the bad and everything in between. And I think that the, the movie tried, you know, it's our obligation to try to simply tell that in the most warm and rewarding way. So uh, the soundtrack hopefully does that mm-hmm. like the movie does at the end of it it's really it's not about opera it's, it's about joy and love and music and food and sex and, <laughs> and, and just, you know it's like all of the things that people love him for and criticize him for that's sort of like the range of emotions should be with the soundtrack and then just you have to be able to to um how to intelligently you know um be sensual with the soundtrack, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it probably didn't come out pretty well, but it is it's just about how we can get the emotions of operati across, which is high opera, but also the simplest delivery method in the world with this beautiful human being who just is just joyous about doing it. So we try to get to, to get our track to sound the way that you know that, that life was led. So. Well, it's it's funny you say that because the last line, I sent a very lengthy initial reaction over to the publicist on the film. And my last two lines of my initial review are, the heart of the film is Pavarotti telling his own story through various interviews. We hear his joy. We hear his passion. We hear his heart and his song. Yeah. And that's exactly what your sound mix conveys. That's where all of this comes from, Chris. Trying to be simple and just stay at the heart of it, and the you know if the soundtrack's successful, it's because of Ron and Mark and Paul Crowder being able to tell that story so beautifully. And it, and as you know, these you know seven or eight months ago, early on, the movie hadn't found its voice, and it did find its voice um, in telling the arc of that story. So our, our track, and that's part of my conversation with Chris Jenkins talking about the sound mix and design of Pavarotti. Hopefully we will come back to Chris later in the show. But right now, we're going to welcome, we are going to welcome the award-winning Grand Jury Prize winner, a- Andrew Gibson. Yeah, hey, Andrew, <laughs> welcome. Congratulations. Oh my! Thank you, thank you. Did you ever, in your wild first film, <laughs> not just first feature, first film, did you ever, in yeah. your wildest dreams, think when you were first accepted into Dances with Films that here you would be the morning after the awards, the announcements, and you would be the grand prize jury winner with Gutterbug? Honestly, absolutely not. Like we did our premiere in Boston. And there was, like, a thought that, like, maybe there's a chance you might win some sort of award, maybe an audience award, if we, we had a bunch of friends come out. But for this festival, it wasn't even something that crossed my mind. Like, we booked our flights to leave um, after a couple days after our screening, like, weren't going to stay for the awards or anything. It didn't even cross our mind. And then I get an email as I, as I get through um, security and, like, all the hassle of LAX, and I finally sit down to get breakfast before my flight on Saturday, and I have an email from the festival programmer. Uh, saying like, call me immediately. You should, you should cancel your flight. So uh, it was pretty wild. It really took us all by surprise. Wow, uh, it was an amazing night last night. Well, yeah. The thing is, for anybody that has seen that saw Gutterbug, and by the way, how was the attendance at the at the screening? Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, it was it was really special. I had a lot of friends, um, Boston friends, and people that I've met, you know, just over the years that live out here now that came out, and then uh, I think there was a lot of new faces too, people that we met at the festival that came out. So it was a really great turnout, really great night, really great after party at the Hotel Roosevelt, which was uh, a great time. 
Well, you know, every classic film fan in the world knows about the Hollywood Roosevelt. It is our favorite oh, place. Yeah. It's our favorite place to oh, be yeah. during the spare the t- room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the we spare room is time. great. I probably stayed there a little longer than I should have, but it was uh, it was a great time. Well, see, next time you come, you have to go and and like actually stay in the hotel in one of the rumored haunted rooms. Yes, yes. Uh, that's what I was like. I was like the real the real move here would have been to get a room here and stock it full of booze so that when they kick us out of the spare room, we can just bring the after party to the to the room, you know? <laughs> so for, for people that did not see Gutterbug at the festival, um, yeah. give give us a short synopsis of what of how you would describe this film. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, it's, it's a rock and roll movie um, about a homeless street punk um Who's, who's living on the streets, doing drugs, living the rock and roll lifestyle, um, and kind of hits rock bottom and, and tries to make his way back home to reconnect with his family. Um, someone at a festival said it's like a train spotting with heart, and I feel like that's a pretty good description of mm-hmm. it. Well, it definitely has a lot of heart, and that's really what took me by surprise, Andrew. I've got to tell you. Um, cool. I mean, you deal with homelessness, mental health, because at the root of bug who is our, our protagonist here, uh, a.k.a. Right. Stephen Bugsby, um, <laughs> you know, his, at, at the root of his, of his issues are he has a mental health issue and he stops taking his meds. Yes. And when he does right. that, he spirals out of control. And the way you structure the film, we don't learn that initially. It takes a little while. So as you're right. watching the film, you think, okay, this is going to be just another train wreck. You know, somebody out on the street, somebody drugged out, been there, done that. We've seen this before. And then you turn it on its head. And, yeah, that was the idea. <laughs> and things really take a change. I mean, we see the homelessness. We see the addiction right away. But then once we discover that Bug suffers with a mental illness and went off his meds, it explains a lot about what totally. we, about what we see and the spiral trajectory that he goes on and and all leading up to his 21st birthday which makes right. as we get into the film makes it even sadder that right. he's just turning 21 he's been on the street for 3 years and you you craft this so beautifully you keep your cast oh, thank you. intimate and small um, you've got Bug, you've got the girl that he falls for, Jenny, who's also on the street. Yeah. His bestie Slim, which I got to tell you, <laughs> uh, you could not have done a better job casting the character of Slim than Justin. Oh, amazing? Everything that he has from his theatrical training and his theatrical work in New York, yeah. he makes Slim very, very theatrical. It's easy to see him totally. playing a Shakespearean character. Um, yeah, he brings. Yeah, he was amazing. It was. It was almost like we had. It was. T- we almost had to reel him in because he was like so theatrical that he would just do different takes, different ways, and he was coming from a theater background. So it was like we were just trying to capture the gold that he was giving us, and we couldn't really, you know, if he did it one way, one take, he would do it a different way the next take. So we were like going through all these takes when we were editing of like all this amazing stuff. And he was, he was really uh, giving us a lot of incredible performances throughout the whole thing. I mean, he blew my mind. Now that's not to take any, anything away from anybody else because you've got Andrew Yackel who plays bug. You've got Hannah Mosqueda who I saw in a short film a number of years ago. Um, that was at LA shorts, strange men. Yes. She plays Jenny. That's where we saw her too. And then you've got Jeff Van Wick, who plays the drug dealer Raleigh, who is actually, yeah. he adds a very pathetically humorous element to the film. Yeah. And then yeah, we were trying to add a, little, add a little bit of humor there with that character. You really did. And then you really bring in some beautiful, beautiful, beautiful moments, thanks to Billy Jenkins, who plays the mini Mark clerk, Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. Such a sweet performance from him a genuine genuine caring likability and he likes everyone except raleigh uh or slim slim. (laughs) (laughs) but now did you know you would be directing this when you wrote this yes absolutely yeah that was the intent from the start it was like we shot a short film 
Um, and then we started working on developing the short, do a feature. But even there, even when we were making the short, we knew that we would that we would be doing the feature. And I had always planned on directing it just because the whole area is so familiar. Like we shot it within a two mile radius of my house, mm-hmm. most of it, most of the film. Uh, so it was, it was like kind of we kind of like reverse engineered the script a little bit at times to like shoot at places that we knew we could shoot for free and that were close to my house. Yeah, that's a key word. Free. Shoot for free. Yes, yeah, when, yes. When you're doing especially in, in this DIY filmmaking world, when you're doing low really budget, quick. no budget, micro budget, and you actually got your funding, you did an Indiegogo campaign. Yes, we did. Yeah, that's what started the whole thing. It was pretty amazing to have like the whole uh, community of Austin kind of rally behind us, and that got the whole thing started. Well, you know, one of the smartest moves that you did uh, when you decided to undertake this project and direct it, once you get your casting. Uh, in place and your location you brought in Acton Fitzgerald as your cinematographer I am a huge yes. fan of his work I, I the work he did on the film Lupe um, I oh talked God, at so length with, with Charles Volo the director on on that film yes. about Acton's yeah, work yes your visual palette here it's polished. It's vibrant. This is this is what really is very striking with your design, Andrew. You've got a vibrancy and a brightness, and your color. Yeah, it's it's, it's delivers a heightened heightened sense of reality. Yet Acton keeps the framing very simple. He doesn't get fancy. Yeah. It lets the performances play out. And the, yeah, he was amazing. And like the, the 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 thing that was cool about that is like he also lives in Austin where we shot the film, so he's been living there for like five or six years. So he knew like all the right spots and the, all the right lighting and what mm-hmm. time to get there and what time to shoot everything. And then we had an amazing colorist, uh, Evan Schwinterly, who just kind of did everything pop. And that was like kind of one of our goals going into it is to make it like really colorful, really hot, like make it feel like a hot summer. Mm-hmm. And um, really have the colors pop. And then we also used a um, old school Angino, um zoom lens. I forget the exact Ooh. zoom it was, but it was like this 90 zoom lens. So we did some zooms. And then also since we weren't able to like, we couldn't afford dollies and steady cams and cranes and stuff. So we kind of just decided to shoot everything on sticks. And then we went handheld for like some of the intense scenes, like when they break into the house and when they uh, rob the bodega. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I mean, just very well done from a cinematographic standpoint oh, and with your with your framing and your lighting. And that's particularly important in a film like this because of what's totally. unfolding, because of the world that you have immersed us in. Um, so often, so many directors will they'll dinge it down. They'll dinge it, they'll tint it, they'll give it a wash, maybe a, a slight sepia, maybe one of those sickly green hospital kind of washes. And right, right. so you really, you're as claustrophobic as the characters. But by adding this element of color and lightness and brightness, yeah. because you have very few nighttime shoots, everything is daytime here, everything is out in the open. Right. Well, the first half, then the second half, we're like kind of at night for a lot of this. But yeah, that's certainly like the first half of the movie is just like hot summer. Yeah, but then even in your third act, when we're at night at, during the nighttime, yeah, it's still you've got that beautiful uh, blue black inky night, but it's punctuated yeah. by the bright by the bright lights, the the front porch light that mom and dad yeah. have left on at Bug's house, hoping beyond yep. hope that one day he will come home and yeah. uh, you know uh, your considerations there in doing that really elevate the film i've got to be honest with you andrew thank you yeah we had we had a pretty amazing um production designer emily o'leary and, and between her and and uh, T. Acton, the cinematographer, they were like super dialed in with all, with all like the locations and all the little details was like so thought out. We were in like, a tight schedule with a small crew and everything, but like before we started rolling, everything in the frame was like very well thought out. So mm-hmm. got to give credit to those two for that. You know, and another big part of this film is also the music that helps set the tone. Uh, yeah, for, totally. For the world that Slim is totally immersed in, for the world that we think Bug is immersed in, but then you realize he really isn't. He's he's yearning for something else. 
Uh, so the music is very, very defining here. Yeah, and the music was really cool because I got to uh, have a lot of my friends' bands in there, like the band that's in the, in the first Mosh Pit scene, Pink Sucks, Baron Halston band, um, and the second rock and roll scene, this band Nice Guys. Um, they're like my favorite band in town and like one of the first bands that I really got into when I moved to Austin and really kind of inspired a lot of the script and just kind of like was part of the reason why I got so into the Austin music scene despite being that band. So they wrote that song specifically for the film, um, which was pretty cool. And it was really cool to have them perform it, too. Mm. What were some of the challenges and hurdles that you as a first time director had to face and overcome? Well, I think the hardest part was just having time to um, actually direct, like uh, as far as being on set, because I was kind of tied to a lot of the locations and um, also tied to like a lot of the cast and the production element. Like we didn't really have much of an on-set producer or an AD. Um, like our producer Lee was kind of working remotely and doing um, a lot of the work, um, kind of like back at base camp. So on set, I felt like I was I had to do a lot of um, just random stuff other than. Um, actually just focusing on directing so that was pretty hard but luckily we had a, a good team around us to kind of uh, it, it really just came down to trusting everyone to do um, their part and you know just filming such a collaborative process I think like going going into it I wanted to be able to control everything and then I quickly realized that I needed to just <laughs> delegate and trust everyone and most people I'd worked with before so I think just by trusting people to do their job and and kind of like letting people do their thing, it, it actually elevated the film to a level that even I wasn't expecting because people brought really interesting ideas to the table that I wouldn't have thought of. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the editing process here, because your editing, it's very clean, it's very crisp, nothing lags, your pacing is very well done, uh, that keeps everything moving, everything rolling, and then when we yeah. see Bug in his total third act, total meltdown, from you know his speed overdose, um, yeah, and you just let the camera, the camera, and you're cutting, uh, you know, cutting between shot, 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 shot. As Andrew's yeah. performance is just totally out of control, and it's actually oh, yeah. it, it's frightening, but it's so powerful. Yeah, I think so. For the editing, like we we some of the techniques that, that I played with was like doing some jump cuts. Mm -hmm. um, so like. Some of the scenes when he's manic and he's um, he's on drugs or he's having an episode, um, we would do jump cuts. So, like, I would just, you know, um, kind of play with the edits a little bit and make the edits kind of jarring. Um, and then some of the, the smoother, more peaceful scenes, like when in the graveyard, we kind of, like, slowed down the pace a little bit. But the original edit was, like, two hours. And then I worked with an editor, this amazing editor, Tim Kane, um, for, like, two weeks at Mix One Studios. And he really helped. Um, cut it down. He cut like 20 minutes off it and just really like um, got the pacing mm -hmm. like, really snappy. So like the job montage scene, he like recut that and like some of the rock show scenes he recut and just had the whole thing moving really fast. No kind of the idea was just to like make it a roller coaster ride and just have it not be boring and like be exciting and never really give a chance for the audience to get up and take a piss. You know, we wanted it to be like really, really engaging and really in your face. No, it, and you definitely succeeded. And I have to say, you mentioned the graveyard. And the graveyard scene is, with so much set in the graveyard, that's so powerful. It's an, it's an incredible underlying metaphor for the direction that these, that these people are headed towards. You know, if they don't clean up their act. Um, I found that to be extremely poignant by setting those, you know, having those scenes taking place in the graveyard. Um, just, did you have any trouble getting permission to shoot in the graveyard? Um, no, we actually, we worked, we, um, this graveyard, uh, Newton, and the cemetery in Newton, we just reached out to them. Uh, we are going to just try to shoot it and steal it, but then we're like, well, let's at least reach out and see if they're, see if they're cool. And they were totally cool. They let us shoot there for free, and they had someone... Um, there with us, kind of helping us out and showing us around. Um, so that that shoot actually was was one of the easier, smoother days because wow. we were able to shoot there and we didn't feel like we were going to get busted or anything. Uh, we were able to kind of wait until magic hour and, and shoot it shoot it the way we wanted to. Oh. So and like yeah, we, that was definitely the underlying theme of like, well, for one, we're like we could probably shoot at a graveyard for cheap or free, 
and the graveyards always look cool on camera, but we also kind of have the underlying theme of, like, fashion stuff going throughout, too. So I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, no, I mean... Such such a well done job, Andrew. Um, unfortunately, oh, Debbie, thank you. Unfortunately, I have to let you go to talk to another incredible. Yes, I'm fr- in the air. I'm in the airport right now. I got to get on my plane and try to leave LA for the second time. So well, I don't get get kicked out or stopped. Uh oh, drugs in my bank. See what happens. <laughs> You're not bugged, so I think I think we're okay. <laughs> Andrew, again, congratulations. And I can't wait to see Thank what you. I can't wait to see what you do next. You've got to come back on the show. Oh, we got a bunch of movies lined up. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna start cranking them out. So you'll you'll be hearing from us soon. Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks, Debbie. Have a good one. Bye. bye. That's one happy filmmaker. One happy filmmaker, Andrew Gibson, gutter bug. Um, I'll actually follow up with the film's publicist, see what's on the horizon in terms of distribution or something, and and uh, let people know on next week's show. But right now, one of, one of my cool favorite people that I know and like. Hello, Josh Huber. Hi, Debbie. How you doing? I'm fine. I can talk today. Isn't that amazing? That's great. You know, last time I talked <laughs> to you, uh, it sounded like you had a long weekend ahead of time. <laughs> No, that was in the middle of, that was like the precursor to totally losing my voice to the point I couldn't even come in studio and do a live show for two weeks. I had no voice at all. So you got me like right, yeah. right there, just as I was going to the, to the, to the abyss, to the vocal abyss. You were right. Yeah, I, yeah it was probably, my, it was my interview that pushed you over the edge. I was it. That, that was, that was it. That, you were the that one. That was the one that well, pushed you over. You know, I wasn't going to say that, but you know. You know, no. let's let's call a spade a spade. <laughs> so, how are you? This is so exciting. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. You've got VOD coming out for making babies, and yep. the, did you ever think the day would get the day would get here? No, I did, but I didn't know it would take so long. And now that it's here, it's um, it's a little strange because the like you said at the end of this week we uh, release on VOD and it's this really it's quiet and kind of calm and everybody's just kicking back waiting out waiting till it drops so it's uh, it's it's kind of nerve wracking. Well, you know, and the timing couldn't now is it going out on on DVD or Blu-ray at the same time or just VOD? Just VOD for now. I think there will be DVD or uh, DVD release later on. But you know, this means. You have the perfect release block because people are going to be taking off. A lot of people are taking extended vacation next week because of 4th of July. They're going to need something to watch. That is a really good point. I didn't even think of that. And that is uh, and especially the, um, the movie that this, our movie is geared towards kind of a, um, God, they gave me the name for it. It was like basically VOD movie watchers. Mm-hmm. So it's people that... It's like um, people oh, yeah. like myself that have kids. They can't make it to theaters. So the only way they ever see movies anymore is on VOD. Mm-hmm. And most likely, it's going to be on the weekend or late at night after the kids went to bed kind of thing. So that is a really good point. And <laughs> thanks for pointing that out. I feel better. You know, I mean, no, it's, it is a perfect time for this to come out on VOD. Because there are a lot of people, they don't travel, they don't go out of town. They, and because 4th of July falls on a Thursday, it's do we take off the early part of the week and this weekend? Or do we take off from the middle of the week or the whole week? So one way or another, people are going to get really extended time off. And what do they do? They sit at home and watch television despite or movies despite their best intentions to get out and do something. <laughs> yeah. No, it's... Um... I'm really looking forward to it because I think uh, we had a we had a small theatrical release mm-hmm. for a small movie like ours. It was you know it's an uphill battle, and um, but with the VOD, this has kind of always been our um, the niche we were always really working towards. Like mm-hmm. for us, that was the one that that meant the most and was really the the big battle we needed to fight. So yeah, I'm I, looking forward to it. Now I've got to ask you. I mentioned at the top of the show and even in my tease, social media teases about. The fact you did self-distribution for theatrical, uh, self-releasing mm-hmm. theatrical, not many filmmakers, you know, have the courage to do that. So now that you actually have gone through that process, 
You got the theatrical run. As you sit back in, in 2020 hindsight, would you go that route again? What are the pitfalls and also the benefits of doing a, self, a self-releasing theatrical? Uh, um, yeah, it's uh, it's hard to answer this because the VOD will tell us a lot of whether or not it was worth it mm-hmm. and whether or not it's something we would do again. Okay. Having gone through it, it, it is it is difficult. Like, it is something that if you're going to self-distribute, it, it's hard and you're going to need a considerable amount of capital to, to do it. You're going to have to set aside some of your budget. And if you are going to do it, I would plan on it'd be something you talk about before you go in when you're in pre-production. Mm-hmm. It's something you set aside money then so you will be able to do it. Uh, the benefits of doing it is you're able to control your artwork. Uh, you're able to control um, a, a lot of these different processes that normally a distribution company would do. And when a distribution company does it, most of them are going to be on your side and they're going to want to make the movie do well. Right. But ultimately, you're kind of at their whim of how they're going to spend money on it, how they're going to allocate resources for it. And, uh, you know, most of them are pretty good about that. They, they've been down the road before. But for us, we were kind of like, all right, we want to do this on our own because we want to we want to know what it's like. It's like mm-hmm. an experience thing for us. So those are the benefits. You do have a lot of control. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it falls on you. Um, the downside to it is because it's because you do have a lot of control, ultimately everything falls on you. So somebody is going to have to be like project managing <laughs> the whole thing from start to beginning. And that's a lot of work. And that was essentially, for us, that was essentially my wife and I. And uh, it was like a whole other phase of, it's nowhere near as bad as production in terms of scope and everything. Mm-hmm. But it's hard. Like it's, it's a lot of calls. It's a lot of admin. It's a lot of, uh, moving money around, allocating resources—it's—it takes a real project-minded type of person to do it. Mm-hmm. And we managed to put together a really good team and 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 get it and do a theatrical release. And I think it turned out to be like uh, eight cities in all. And we went for two weeks. And by no means was it a block office bonanza, but where the benefit was in going theatrical is that. In a lot of ways, it will help us. You get you get a lot of reviews, first of all. And secondly, you also get better placement in VOD. So when mm-hmm. you finally do go into those VOD channels, this is a movie that went theatrically, and it gets a little bit more love than the rest of the movies that are floating around, like kind of the, the sea of VOD options out mm-hmm. there. So in that regard, it does help us. Once again, we'll have to see how the VOD does. Because if the VOD does pretty strong and it's something, then we'll look back and say, like, okay, some of this may have had to do with the theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that, that's, whether or not I do it again, I guess I'd have to take it on a, a movie-by-movie movie basis. It, it, it depends. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I, it really does. Well, I think you made the, this a smart move by doing it with this one. And also, you've also now learned... When you do, for your next film, when you do go and talk to distributors with a distribution route and all, you also have learned some more questions to ask in choosing a distributor. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, I think if nothing else comes of it, you it has given you, you know, information, you know, forearmed is forewarned, shall we say, um, as you move forward with productions. No, it, it, what I was surprised to find when we were doing the, and Samuel Goldwyn is helping us, is doing the VOD distribution for us. Mm-hmm. And they're a really good partner. They're very good. We're, we're really lucky to have them. Yeah, they, they really get the movie, and we're in good hands with them. But um, it, 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 having gone through that whole process of theatrical, like for me, at the end, I was like, I just want to see how this goes. I wanted to, the more you can know, the better. Yeah. And. The, yeah, going through the theatrical side of it and just kind of forming our way through it was there were some hard lessons there but there were a lot of things that came to light and yeah I think at the end of the day we're, we're better for it for sure and I mean I, it's funny when you're writing and directing a movie and you, you tend to focus on all this creative stuff but 
you really do now have to be essentially a a marketer and a promoter. Like you have to be able to do all these things, and you have to have a pretty good idea how you want to market the movie to who. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, it, it just, uh, a lot of filmmakers they'll finish up the movie, they could take the best offer from the distribution company, and then they never talk about it again. Right, it's done. Like it's just it's moved on. It's like they sold a house or something. And I, I was. Um, me and my brother and all our producers were a little thrown off by that. We were like, well, we did dump a, a lot of energy and time and resources into this. We're not just going to hand it over and then that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we wanted to yeah. make sure it went to the right place. You know, you mentioned something very, so, very key, though, as a filmmaker. Know your audience. Who are you marketing to? Who are you making this film for? Um, uh, you know, I mean, I've had so many filmmakers and I've asked them, you know, who, and they said, well, for everyone. Well, <laughs> ideally, yes, we want every, everyone to see every film, but that, that's not going to happen. Not everybody wants to even go see Avengers Endgame. Um, right. the, so you have to know who you're marketing for, who is this film speaking to? And now right. with making babies, who did you intend who were you making this film for uh much like the the person you're saying before going in i kept on saying well anybody can watch this i i well it, and it was kind of and i kept saying that but i really meant was i knew that like teenagers this was not going to be a movie they right into. i knew that like 20 somethings who are you know busy being single and having a good time this is not the movie for them right so those i always pretty much knew it was going to be um, uh, you know, I don't know. I always said like, like thirty through, you know, up up until like uh, grandparents, because I did yeah. notice that when we were going to festivals and stuff like that with this movie, that there were a lot of people like kind of baby boomer age whose kids went through the same process in the movie, and they're really interested, and they were always kind of scared to talk to their kids about it. So I had a lot of people older oh. generation that were showing interest in it, which I did not see, mm-hmm. and which I just didn't see coming at all. And it was like a big eye-opener. But when we were doing our social media marketing for, and this is actually something that will help us in the VOD, when we were doing all the social media marketing and reaching out during the theatrical, our company that we were working with was, was noticing that we were seeing like huge spikes at, from mommy blogger groups. And just like uh, like this kind of mommy blogger culture that I that I didn't know about at all, mm-hmm. and they were all over the place. And that demographic, like the kind of the um, the mom and the dad that are once again can't go to movies during the week because they got kids and right. they just don't have time. That group really just spiked more than we ever saw. Wow! So kind of going back to your earlier question, what did we learn? We learned that VOD. That's where we push the bulk of our marketing. Like that's mm-hmm. our that's our market right there. So, yeah, if anything, it helped us find a market out there. Like who who wanted to do this? Because I'll be honest, like going in, I was just as ignorant as that as any as any filmmaker. Like anybody can enjoy this, of course, and which is not the case. Like it's just I don't enjoy every movie, neither do you, even good ones. So it's um, yeah, it's just. That so that part really did help us narrow down our market. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one, you know, when we talk about, you know, anybody can see this. Yeah, there are there are reasons for ev- anybody to see this. Um, number one, the story is, you know, the story. It's a great story. It's it's a, un- a relatively universal story of a couple that wants to have a baby. Um, then you have an amazing cast, Steve Howie, who I love. You know, I I just adore Steve. After I after he did the film Unleashed for Finn Taylor, he has he is a great comedian. Love his work. Oh yeah, this film. And, and you're part of one of many of the Steve Howie fan clubs out there. Oh my there's god! People just, there's people who just love him to death. Like it's just I get that a lot. Uh, yeah. I, I mean he's he's just, it's like. I cracked up when I saw him for the first time in Unleashed, and he's playing a dog. You know, he's been he's a, he's a dog that has been trans the soul has been transferred into this has become a man through the cosmic forces yeah. and all. 
So he's doing animal movements and, and sounds and it's hilarious. So, and then when I saw, and I told you before, uh, when we last talked, that was one of the big things for me. When I saw, when KJ sent me the press, sent me the release and said, hey, are you, Debbie, interested in, in seeing this? And I saw Steve Howie and I went, oh yeah, send this puppy along. Um, <laughs> I've got to see this film. And then the fact that you also get veterans like Glenn Headley, her final, her final role, and Ed Begley Jr., um, you get these veterans, you get the young, you know, your cast is a great mix with an appeal for a, a wide demographic, age demographic. But then your production values are fabulous. And, of course, you know I'm talking about Matt Edwards, his cinematography. You know I'm a huge fan of Matt and a lot of your crew that all came off of the off-the-menu production team. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we... They they we just they basically wrapped up off the menu and they like walked over two stages over to us. It was pretty funny. And that was just really it was kind of a weird coincidence that way. Yeah, but I you have great craftsmen, great art artisans working on this film. So the film it's it's beautiful to look at. It's lovely to look at. And you have it's a very serious subject matter though about wanting to have a baby. Is it the right time? Can you? Can't you? What's happening? One, one, you know, partner may want it more than the other one. How is this going to upend lives? How are you preparing for things? And where you could have gone very somber, very dark, very dramatic, you stay comedic, you keep it light, but you also don't get overly fancy in the production. You let the actors tell the story. And that's always worth saying. Yeah, it was. Yeah, when we were going in, uh, talking to like Matt Edwards and stuff, like that. and Matt Edwards is uh, he's technical, he, 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 and he's a really good filmmaker, and he has, um, and we're both kind of excited by the same kind of movies. We like it's because when we were making this, we realized that we're into these really like we really like guys like Fincher and stuff like that, but this kind of movie doesn't call for that kind of sophisticated camera work mm -hmm. and uh, and also we just don't have the time or the money to do it but it was like all right well we're just going to have to make this really simple and we're not going to be able to do a lot of the things we love doing but that's fine it's just accept the movie report it is if we did have you know, um, you know a lot of complicated camera work and stuff like that it would it would take away from the story like you said it was for for us it was like it's kind of accepting what the movie was and being like, all right, let's move forward and, and try to do that the best we can. And more often than not, um, that was just kind of making sure that we got the best performances out of our actors. And, mm -hmm. um, and for that, you want a real simple setup. You want to keep things, you know, um, pretty loose. And that way during the editing, you'll always have plenty of coverage going in. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was, in a lot of ways, it was just uh, you know, being practical and, and, and making the best out of our time and our actors, because that we knew that that was going to be one of our big assets. We had a mm -hmm. really good cast, so why hide from that? Well, and the other thing that you, that you have is with your script, you know, the comedy comes from the drama. You don't force. There's no forced comedic moments on the page or in the performance. And I like that because so easily you could have tried to intentionally write in humorous things that just didn't gel um here you know you've got medical professionals you've got doctors and you know notably ed bagley jr's performance and you let the their ineptitude you know you just let them play and you get a lot of comedic mileage out of that you get a lot of comedic mileage out of steve howey um his facial expressions his exasperation, his energy. Um, you don't force anything within the script. And I think that's really important for a film like this. Yeah, no, it's, I, it's, uh, thank you for saying that because it is, as we were going in, it was comedy wise, it was always something, you're on this line where it's like you have to, comedy comes from conflict like this, like it, and, you do have to walk a very fine line at times to make sure that that, because 
if you if you're off the mark, it, you can people notice. And there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor that was off the mark. And it's mm-hmm. like, all right, rather than try to massage it, let's just get it out. It might be funny in the moment, but it's just not going to work here. So, I don't know, you, you, those are always tough too. It's because you, you probably spent a lot of time and effort on these things, and to cut them away is sometimes not not easy. But then when you see how it fit, how it didn't fit in and how how much better the movie is, you're like, oh, okay, well then it's worth it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious, Josh, because you're you're wearing the hat of writer and director. How precious were you with your darling words? You know, there's there's some direct writer directors, and it's never shall you change a word on the page. How precious were you with your words once you actually started filming and getting the feel and the sense and seeing how things were playing out? Uh, I was, um, for me, I was I was open to. I, they weren't, it wasn't precious to me by any means. Um, if somebody had a better way of saying something or and usually an actor will point this out to you like, ah, this, this sounds clunky is there a better way to say it? And, and a lot of times, um, you know, a good portion of the movie is actually improv as well. Mm-hmm. Like it's, normally the way it worked was, is, you know, I would do, you know, two, three, four, you know, takes of them just doing it by the script. And then after that, I was like, look, I, I got what I need from the script. Play this how you want now. Like, if you want to remove a line, just go to town. Like, have some fun. Mm-hmm. Like, really, you know, improv all you want. Or ad would probably be the better word. And somebody like Eliza that has made a career out of that is really good with that. And she comes in kind of prepared anyways with that. And it will do it instinctually. And Bob Stevenson, same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always very open to that. And was willing to hear it. It didn't always work, if it, but a lot of it did. And when it works, it's, it's really great. And so there, there were a few things, like especially with the medical stuff, mm-hmm. Ed, I was just like, stay on, we had to stay on the, on, with the dialogue. It yeah. Like we, it's exposi- it's very much exposition. And so I was like, you can't really do that anyway. And Ed understood that. Like he knew that yeah. he's played enough doctors that he knows he, he yeah, he has. As, You're as, right. As written. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's, nothing was by no means precious, except for stuff that was like, okay, this needs to be said this certain way. And, uh, but that was really it. You know, aside from that, I was willing to hear any at all. And if somebody had a better way of saying something, I was more money. I just wanted a good movie. That's all I wanted at the end of the day. And the script for me was always just this document for us to work off of. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you know, scripts are, um, they're never, they're never done. They're just abandoned. And that's kind of how, at some point during the editing process, we just put the script up to the side and I never looked at it again. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you've got, you know, how many other scripts do you have sitting around? Because this was your first feature. You better be working on a second I one. Com- you better be working on yeah, a second I one. Yeah, I, I just worked on another one that uh, uh, I'm you know, kind of floating around right now, and I'm currently starting another one that I'm working on. But um, uh, nothing uh, moving too, too, nothing moving down the pike right now, but aside from just kind of shopping it around. I just got done with this other one. Mm-hmm. Now, done writing it, or? Well, this stage of writing, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now, I, I, it's, I mean, it's never done, like I said. It's, but uh, it, we have it to a point now where we're trying to, you know, kind of move it along a little bit and take it to some people that we know to see if we can get them interested in it. And this just kind of started, like, this last week. So it's pretty new. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, and in the meantime, I was like, all right, well, I got to stay busy, so it's, and then um, so I'm working on another project right now. Well, of course, to that off the ground. So, yeah, there's always you got to have a lot of irons in the fire. The, the the more projects you're kind of working on, the better. Which is tough because as a writer, you tend to want to do one script at a time. And mm-hmm. It's tough to you don't write two or three at a time. It just at least I don't. Um, and I like to go project by project. But you know, a script takes. A year just to get into good shape. It takes a long time to, to write scripts. And then usually by the time you go into production, it's been two, two and a half years of, right. of really cranking on it. So mm-hmm. and it's not until then that 
it really gets good. And then, even then, you can still screw it up. <laughs> well, be- we're almost out of time. But before I let you go, Josh, I've got to ask you, because you do have irons in the fire and there will be more films coming down the pike and projects, I've got to ask you, what is the gift? What is the greatest gift that filmmaking gives to you that keeps you going? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, it gives me a chance to work. The cool thing about film, filmmaking is that it, it kind of encapsulates all the different art forms. Mm-hmm. It's, it's writing, it's, um, it's performance, it's lighting, and, uh, you know, you're building sets and uh, painting and, and, you know, camera work and photography It's all and music. It's all these things combined, and these are all things that I'm really into. So for me, on, on the personal side, I like dabbling in those things. I like the, the, the researching a screenplay and, and then writing it and learning about all these different things is exciting for me. And I, I like digging into the you know, choosing music and trying to figure out you know, how this what how this scene's going to be by using all these different tools that a filmmaker gets to use, which is, you know, like I said before, it's photography and music and, and acting and writing. And you get to all these things kind of converge at once. And to me, that's the best part. On the other side, I just, I want to make movies that people want to see. You know, I like the idea of, of throwing a, a story out there and then people enjoying it. It, it really is that simple. It's in a lot of ways it's, I give as much as I take it. So it's, it, and, you know, it's, I just want to tell an interesting story. That, that, that's, that's the whole thing. I want people to find an interesting story and then, and then tell it to people. And that was really it. And then filmmaking is really, you can do it in a book or wherever you want, but filmmaking is the, probably the hardest way to tell a story. Mm-hmm. But it, for me, it's just really rewarding because when it gets, when you get it right, there's there's nothing really more powerful there's no better sometimes there's no better way of getting of a story across than with a film well you definitely got it right with making babies oh thank you oh josh thank you so much this has been just so much fun talking to you again you know get something else going so that we can talk again you know i know well i'm 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 ready to just do anything I can to get back on the show. You know, I'm <laughs> a half hour support for you. Something, anything. 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 Oh, Josh, thank you. And everybody, now is it is it going to be, because VOD t- is typically out on Tuesday, so is it going to be tomorrow or next Tuesday? It's going to be the 28th. The 28th. Of this month. Pam, what day is the 28th? Pam has a calendar. Oh, oh, that's right. It's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. The twenty-eighth. No, is it tomorrow? Yes. No. No. It, it no? should be the twenty-eighth. Is it next it week? Oh yeah, it is. It's next week. Year. Okay, tomorrow's the twenty-fifth. I'm jumping ahead because I want Fourth of July week here already. Um, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, yes. That, that was uh, yeah. Yeah. No. 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 So it's the twenty-eighth, and it will be on Amazon, iTunes, um, and you could. Uh, oh, okay. Friday. Also, well, I should say Apple. Apple TV. iTunes is no longer around, but. Uh, yeah, and then uh, your local cable provider should have it as well, if anybody. And, yeah, and then we'll see where we go from there. Well, this Friday, this Friday, the 28th, everybody can see Making Babies, um, and I hope they do. Josh, thank you, thank you, thank you, my friend, and I will talk to you soon. Hey, thanks, Debbie. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. See you, bye And that is all the time we have today. Be on the lookout for Gutterbug. Um, I'm going to find out about the distribution and where else that's going going and fill you in next week on that. Uh, But, yes, this Friday, Making Babies, it's funny, it's sweet, it's a well-made film, it looks good, it's entertaining. I recommend it highly. Next Monday, Greg Kinnear. So... He's got, a, he's got a film coming out that he directed. So we want to hear about this. Um, that is all the time we have today. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.